This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear, actually does not contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Don't know if you've been tracking as I have the Senate race between Dr. Oz and John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. One breakthrough moment came in a video recording of Dr. Oz shopping for vegetables. He was trying to make the point that they're really quite expensive. He got the name of the store wrong, but that wasn't what grabbed everyone's attention. He called this collection of vegetables crudite. Crudite. The vicissitudes of Vichyssois owe nothing to the crudities of crudite, and Pennsylvanians were incredulous over the crudite reference within their state. Fetterman tweeted out in Pennsylvania, we call this veggie tray. Fine, but then Rachel Tripp, Oz's senior communications advisor, doubled down by saying of Fetterman, who's been kept off the campaign trail as he recovers from a stroke, she said, quote, if John Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable in his life, then maybe he wouldn't have had a major stroke and wouldn't be in the position of having to lie about it constantly. Oh, snap, said the fresh stalk of celery. So to give you a sense of the visuals here, Dr. Oz looks like Dr. Oz. You could picture him. He's a mainstay of TV. Fetterman, he's 6'9". He wears a lot of hoodies. Used to weigh about 400 pounds. He's dropped at least 100. But I would say this is a race between two beloved green movie characters, Oz and Shrek. Let's say Shrek. And maybe while Rachel Tripp's brushback pitch was the kind that would have played well in, say, a cardiologist's conference off of Hilton Head Island, to the yinzers of Moon County, oh no. Pennsylvania, you see, has an obesity rate of 31.5%, and not that obesity and never eating a vegetable go hand in hand, but... I've been extensively in Pennsylvania. They're not the most verdant of people, let us just say. Pennsylvania's obesity rate is the highest in the Northeast. We have to define Northeast somewhat carefully because if you include West Virginia, well, they once took a blood test of the population and it came back giblet gravy. But 31.5%, I could just say the many citizens of Pennsylvania, upon hearing Rachel Tripp saying, if you've ever eaten a vegetable in your life, you wouldn't have had a stroke, having a Spartacus moment, standing up and saying, I've never eaten a vegetable. And then again, I've not eaten a vegetable. Lips that touch carrots shall never touch mine. It was not the zinger that she had hoped for. Dr. Oz is trailing in most recent polls by 5 to 10%. On the show today, I spiel about a statement that was redacted by a CEO who just wants better funding for people who aren't named Adam Newman. But first, he was first elected in 1974, making him the longest serving U.S. Senator. Patrick Leahy of Vermont joins me to talk about his new memoir, The Road Taken. We discuss if the Senate can go back to what it once was, and also Batman. He's been in many Batman movies. Senator Patrick Leahy up next. 
Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont is the longest serving senator in that institution. But that statement has been true since 2012, first elected in 1974. The senator is retiring and he has come out with a memoir called The Road Taken. If you like history, it's excellent. In fact, it's an observer of important hinge points in American history. If you like current events, it's also fascinating because he takes you inside the personality of people who are shaping our political reality right now. Senator Leahy, welcome to The Gist. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's good to be with you. And I just know one thing. It was 74 when I got elected because I remember one of the very senior senators saying to me, boy, how old are you? And uh, <laughs> I said, well, well, 34. Anybody ever tell you you're too young to be the United States Senate? I I responded, Yes, my opponent, for one. <laughs> it was not the answer he expected, and we got along fine after that. <laughs> Do you remember the first time an opponent started uh, criticizing you for being too old to be in the U.S. Senate? No, um, because my response on that would be very easy. Here's some of the things I've done because of my seniority. And if it's in Vermont, I'd list everything from cleaning up Lake Champlain to expanding our uh, Green Mountain National Forest and, you know, dozens of other things that you can't do that unless you've got seniority. Yeah, but I do, I remember reading in the book in 1980, you were uh, in a bind. One, terrible headwinds for Democrats. This was Reagan uh, defeating Carter, and you hadn't yet built up a resume where you could point to the dozens of years of spending that you brought back to the state. So of all your elections, and the book gets into the very close ones, was that the one that you thought, well, I mean, I think if we look at the vote total, it does bear this out, but was that the one you were most nervous about winning? Well, the first two, but the, yes, the second one, because um, everybody said, well, you, you win, you're an incumbent. But Marcel, my wife, and I were going around to uh, people early in the morning, straight through late at night, and the feeling we were getting was this could be a problem. In a debate that was we knew was going to be watched all over the state, and people still did at that time. And Marcel had said, look, you are a prosecutor, you are a trial lawyer, be yourself. Forget the uh, talking points, forget all that. And when my opponent started repeating his, his talking points from the Republican campaign committee, and I turned to him, I said, that's not true. You know that's not true. That's put together by somebody in Washington. Here's the truth. I went boom, 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 boom. And he didn't realize the camera was still on him. He got angry, looked at his things. You could see Republican Senate campaign committee. He took the papers and threw them on the floor. The campaign... <laughs> The campaign turned around at that point. I think about some of the anecdotes in your book, and I was frequently relating them back to your being from Vermont. For instance, early on in the Senate, it was uh, Warren Magnuson who was running, was it the Appropriations Committee? That's right. Yeah. And uh, you, you chime in with, uh, Senator, I'd like to just add 50. And he said, 
be quiet. You're too young. And you said, uh, I'd just like to add 50. He said, why are you 50 million dollars? That's too much for a young center <laughs> like you. And then you said, no, no, no. I'd like to add 50,000 dollars to the appropriation you're looking over. And he said, 50,000. Don't waste my time. Just tell the staff they'll write it in. And so my question is, <laughs> right? That That's true. Yeah. I said, boy, I'm going to like this, uh, <laughs> this committee. And since then, of course, I've been able to help out our state actually more than anybody ever has. And, and I'll tell you how, how it's not just being on appropriations, but one of the things I learned is you work with both Republicans and Democrats. My most effective legislation is when I reach across the aisle, uh, personal relationships. I talk about it in the book because I want people to know when the Senate's worked, it's been because senators of both parties got together. When it's failed, and it's failing a lot lately, is because it's been polarized. Democrats don't talk to Republicans. Republicans don't talk with Democrats. So I mentioned the $50,000 appropriation for Vermont because, and you mentioned how often you talk to constituents and you have met them before and they really, it's not as if they got to know you, they do get to know you because the scale of Vermont, a state with 600 or so thousand people seems more human and a $50,000 appropriation actually has an impact in a population of 624,000. Whereas if you were the Senator from California, you might not even bother asking for that appropriation. Is Vermont um, or let's put it this way. Are other large states at a disadvantage, senators from large states at a disadvantage because they can't do retail politics the way you can? It depends upon the state. It depends upon the senator. Uh, some senators in both parties seem to be more interested in their reelection than day-to-day -day, uh, involvement with their state. On the other hand, I've seen Senators from large states who work very, very hard uh, with their state, and, and it shows uh, in what they what they do. I appreciate the fact, you know, I was born in Vermont. Marcel was born in Vermont. We have family, friends there. Uh, we can just walk down the street and run into people we've known for years. You get a pretty good sense. I also have been able to work closely with uh, most of our governors, uh, no matter which party they belong to, uh, in uh, during COVID, I called our Republican governor and I said, I, I want you to know I've arranged using what we call the Leahy small state minimum uh, for aid to Vermont in, in COVID. I said, I, I put in a billion, 250 million uh, for Vermont. There's a pause at the other end. I said, are you still there? He said, did you say a billion? I said, a billion, 250 million, if, if you want it. And he said, don't ever leave the Senate. <laughs> and I, I thought back to that uh, $50,000. But it was a crucial time. And I, I fought for it. Uh, some senators uh, did very, very well because they fought for it. Others gave speeches. I, I went and met quietly with both Republicans and Democrats. I said, here we're doing this. Uh, it will benefit our Republican gover governor and our Democratic uh, legislature. But mostly it will benefit Vermont.
And people joined with me on that. And, and we got it through. So confirming Supreme Court justices, I, for a long time, we've known that there is only so much that a congr- that a Senate hearing can do in terms of advising consent. Um, it has become, there is now a script. It's likened to Kabuki, although from what I know of the actual Japanese art form, it's, that's a little bit of an insult to Kabuki. Is that process broken? Is there any way to fix the actual advise and consent purpose of the Senate? There would be if we carried out the hearings in the way we should. Um, You know, Robert Bork, they say, oh, look what they did to Robert Bork. People forget that even though Bork failed in the committee, uh, the Democratic-controlled Senate said, this is too important to just have a committee vote and allowed it to go to, uh, to the floor of the Senate to vote. And the fact is there was a large number of Republicans who voted against him. There were some Democrats who voted for him, and he failed. Uh, people forget that when they say, oh, he was, he was the expression borked. Uh, but, he, but he wasn't. He was given a thorough hearing, and it was Republicans voted against him. Some Democrats voted for him. But he was given a vote. Now things are rushed through. I'll give you an idea in the Kavanaugh hearing. There were legitimate questions. He had shared material that had been stolen from the Judiciary Committee by a man named Miranda in uh, earlier time and shared with him. We want to ask him questions about that. Uh, we, we, we weren't able to ask him questions. The, we asked the FBI to give a uh, investigation of that. The White House limited the ability of the FBI to do an accurate investigation. It was basically, the hearing was a farce uh, because it was, it was rushed through. It broke the Senate rules. It broke the Senate uh, tradition and material was kept out. That doesn't help anybody. And it also damaged the credibility of the uh, Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is damaging its own credibility. You got people like Justice Alito, who goes to political events, gives political speeches, things um, Supreme Court justices didn't do. And, you know, I voted on every Supreme Court justice since John Paul Stevens, a Republican, nominated by a Republican president. And I talk about my relationship with Justice Stevens and how I was able to talk with him when he's contemplating when he'd retire. Yeah. And then in the book, it talks about you trying trying to intervene and get Ruth Ginsburg to at least consider retirement. But it does seem that all of the solutions, I at least hear from people, I was going to use the phrase your generation, there is no one of your generation, even though Chuck Grassley is uh, close to your age. No, he's, he's a lot older. <laughs> but he runs every day, which I don't. <laughs> <laughs> All the solutions seem to be we need to get back to the way it was in the past. And this gets me back to the idea of nostalgia. It doesn't seem like we're ever going to get back to the past. What are the solutions for the future? What can you know a younger member of the House Judiciary do if, say, the Democrats take control to make the confirmation process a little more substantive? 
No, you ask a good question. I don't think it will ever come back exactly to what it was. And remember, I'm not suggesting the Senate was ever perfect. Look what happened during segregation. And go back to the time of the Civil War. And we've had difficult times. But then we've also had times when they've come together. When Republican senators, people like Hugh Scott and Barry Goldwater, even though they it pained them to do it, going down to the White House and telling Richard Nixon, you have to leave. Now you have the senators who will tell you privately what Donald Trump had done was wrong, but they didn't dare say that publicly, and they have to go out and be supportive of him. It's a six-year term. If you can't stand up and say what's right, you shouldn't be there. And um, it's a different media cycle. It's elections have become too polarized and expensive, but there's no reason why senators can't go back to actually spending time with each other and trying to work things out. And one of the reasons writing the book, I hope senators come in and realize we can do it better and should do it better. And if we don't do it better, both the the Senate uh, and the country lose badly. So the last thing I want to talk to you about, Batman movies, you've been in five of them, I think? (laughs) Yep. Yep. And the different Batman you've worked with are Clooney, Kilmer, not sure you had a scene with Kilmer, and uh, all the Christopher Nolan Batman of Christian Bale, and then Ben Affleck. Who do you think's the best cinematic Batman? Well, (laughs) I I think think they're all... All were good. I think Christian Bale did a, an extremely good job. He it was interesting watching him when he's on set. He was just in character. Uh, he didn't leave the character, whereas others others would. Even Heath Ledger, who was one of the best actors in any of these, as the Joker. Uh, he when he had a knife to my throat, and the uh, director said. Act frightened, I said, act? I'm not (laughs) acting. You know, I'll settle for his loved ones. We're not intimidated by thugs. You know, you remind me of my father. I hated my father. Uh, But then uh, he'd be sitting around having a cup of coffee and just joking with everybody, and even with that macabre uh, makeup on. But you know, the... I was born blind in one eye, basically blind. But I started reading at an early age. I had a library card at the age of four in the uh, library in Montpelier, the children's library, which was in the basement of of the adult library. But it was a wonderful place. I, I just read everything, plus Batman comics. When I was asked to write things written on, on Batman books, Hopkins stories and the anti-landmine, I give every single cent that they pay, and they pay a lot, to the uh, children's library, plus raising other money from some of the people I met through the Batman movies. The children's library now is a whole new, beautiful, state-of-the-art wing connected to the adult library, where they can have everybody from children with learning disabilities to those who are geniuses. They've all got something they can they can do. And it's a a wonderful place. 
but you walk in and you look way up in the corner on the ceiling, near the ceiling, there's a little bat signal. And it says, our, our superhero is Patrick Leahy. But uh, no, I'm, I just think if children will learn to read and enjoy reading, I don't care what they read, just enjoy reading, they're going to do better. And, uh, but I do get teased about Batman. And after my hip surgery, initially I was in a wheelchair, it was a black wheelchair. So I said, oh, what the hell? I put bat signals on both sides. <laughs> and, and got a standing ovation when I came on the floor of the Senate from both Republicans and Democrats. And that made me feel better than any uh, physical therapy I could have. So let me ask you one last question. I know we have limited time. Uh, before your book came out, a biography, I think the first biography of you came out by Philip Baruth, who is a professor there in Vermont. And he had an analysis of your involvement in the Batman credits and pop culture. And he said, the Batman cameos have always been tangible, active components of a highly successful political image drawn simultaneously from high, low, and popular cultures. Do you agree with that assessment? Was some of that calculation going on? I think the world of Phil, uh, Philip Baruth is a wonderful legislator and professor, so I'm not going to I, if that's his analysis, I'll go along with it. I just had fun doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's fun to watch how, how they make these movies. Uh, you know, just I, I do a lot of photography, and I watch how they do it. I, I spend as much time talking with the photographers on these movie sets as I, as I do with anybody else because uh, I learn from it. And to be able to give money to the children's library in, in, at the Kellogg Hubbard in Montpelier makes me twice as happy. I've been speaking with the man third in line of succession, uh, should anything happen or befall President Joe Biden as Speaker Pro Tem of the Senate and a United States Senator since 1974 and Chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Patrick Leahy is also a memoirist and his book is called The Road Taken. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, I've, I've enjoyed it. Take care. And now the spiel. Last week, the investor Mark Andreessen, co-founder of Netscape and co-founder of his venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz, wrote a check. He wanted to disrupt a market, as venture capitalists do. The market in his sights was residential rental real estate, meaning the check was bound to be a big one. And it was. $350 million. It was, in fact, the biggest check the firm had ever written. And that check went to a famous entrepreneur, or perhaps a notorious entrepreneur. If you look at it one way, Adam Newman founded a company, WeWork, now worth $3 billion. If you look at it another way, Adam Newman left WeWork after his company lost about $40 billion in value. But the early investors in WeWork got paid, and later investors may well still. For all the crazy talk of being some sort of lifestyle, kibbutz, higher plane of consciousness, WeWork owns valuable real estate and is returning to solid cash flow after being crashed and crushed by the pandemic. And, oh yeah, 
Oh yeah, there was a lot of crazy talk. You could sample it via the couple of nonfiction books, the many articles in the Wall Street Journal that the Wondery podcast pulled from, or the Netflix series based on that Wondery podcast. Why are you coming to us? Because you have all the money. (laughs) The question is, if a guy who's worth billions wants to fund a guy who lost billions, who are any of us to mess with their flow? That is the name of the company, by the way, Flow. Perhaps reminiscent of a state of blissful creativity, perhaps evocative of the wave pool business Newman acquired when he ran WeWork. But back to the question, whose business is it of outsiders to get in the way of flow of capital from investor to potential CEO tasked with executing the investor's vision? The answer, according to critics, is it's their business, or more to the point, the lack of business that women and minorities get in terms of funding from venture capitalists. The poster boy for profligacy gets a second chance, and this is a story that they see happening over and over again. Among the loudest voices lamenting this development was Allison Byers, a CEO of a company that seeks to level the playing field for underfunded entrepreneurs. On the tech blog, TechCrunch, Byers cited her rage, adding, quote, there's this undertone of acceptance and almost learned helplessness, or like trauma we've all experienced, so it doesn't make the same impact anymore. On Bloomberg, she once again spoke of her feelings of disgust. It's visceral. It hits you. But then it also quickly becomes a muted rage because, as I tweeted, it is expected. It is not a surprise we are used to it. But you you have to feel that rage when you are part of that community that is just historically blocked from accessing this funding. Now, of course, it is not the case that if Newman didn't get Andreessen Horowitz funding, an entrepreneur from a historically underrepresented and underfunded group would have. It's also not the case that the investment is a bad one, could well make the investors lots of money, which is why investors invest. But it is certainly the case that Newman has more baggage than LaGuardia Airport. Those were the feelings informing Allison Byers, and here were some of her facts. Whenever something big like this comes out, a big funding round, a lot of underrepresented founders, particularly women, people of color, are asked, why why the outrage? Why do you have this emotion? Uh, well, it's because only 2% of VC dollars go to women, 2% go to Latinx founders, 0.67% go to black founders, and there are less than 100 black women total who have raised more than a million in VC funding. These are important issues to be raised, and sometimes in the world of startups, issues are more easily raised than cash. But undercutting Byer's argument was essentially how I found out about it. I read a newsletter called Morning Brew, and it had this odd note today. The flow story in yesterday's Brew Review included a comment made by CEO Allison Byers to Bloomberg. Byers has since retracted her statement, and we've updated the article. Retracted? What is this, an official diplomatic cable that offered to sign Kevin Durant in the offseason? So I tracked it down. The original Bloomberg write-up of the interview had this notation. Correction, August 21st, 2022, an earlier version of this story included a comment made by CEO Allison Byers to Bloomberg. Byers has since retracted her statement. It did not include what her earlier statement was. The video of her appearance, from which we 
pulled the two clips you heard, was prefaced, and if you go there now, you see this on the screen with these words written out. This video was corrected to remove certain statements made by Allison Byers about Adam Newman, which she has since withdrawn, and which should have been challenged during the original broadcast. And again, no mention of what those statements were, the statements that were now being memory hold. Well, finally, I found it. Here's what Byers said, quote, What is a major prestigious investment house doing backing fraud a second time? Because there was no charge of criminal fraud, both Byers and Bloomberg must have felt that putting the allegation out them made them vulnerable to lawsuits. We asked Bloomberg for a comment or clarification of what their correction policy is regarding taking down statements without reference to the original. We're still waiting to hear back. I'm sure Byers, if asked, would say, and I may well ask her, that she was speaking metaphorically or in the common, not criminal sense. But that's what occasioned the retraction across multiple platforms. It created, by the way, something of a Streisand effect for me. I felt a need to figure out what it was that she actually said on Bloomberg TV. But the Streisand effect, which is when hiding a fact inspires others to seek that fact out, also let me in on the funding stats, which were lamentable, but not surprising. I did wonder about the wisdom of leading with rage of giving quotes citing rage, of doing TV interviews speaking of rage. I bet buyers would say, yeah, it's not the wisest, but it is honest. On the other hand, the work of establishing sustaining systems that even the playing field and strike a blow for a fairer, better method are probably, I'd say maybe inspired in a flash of anger, but better executed with more fortitude than fury. It's a tough lesson for would-be founders, founders that never got their first chance, but it's one you can't put a price on. Though, if you did, I would guess that $350 million would cover it. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is casting agent, and she notes that we played two different clips of two different Batmen, and therefore we should track down and book Cesar Romero for next week's shows. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Meet the Joker. <laughs> the Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, Du Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>